Hi, welcome to Bike Talk. We're streaming at Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, and KPFK in Los Angeles, California. KPFK is a Pacifica radio station, and Valley Free Radio is a Pacifica affiliate. Today, we have the Estonian ambassador to the Netherlands, also the executive director of the Los Angeles Bicycle Coalition, and a traffic prodigy who's an intern with the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition. First, Lori Kusing, Estonian ambassador to the Netherlands, talks about biking there and what it's like to be in Europe with what's going on right now. Welcome to Bike Talk. I'm Lindsay Sturman, the co-host, and we are so excited to have Laurie Kusing, who is the Estonian ambassador to the Netherlands. Thank you so much for joining us on Bike Talk. Thank you so much for inviting, and I'm really pleased that we've been able to do it given the difficult times in Europe, but uh, globally, in fact. Yeah, so it's a really hard day going on in Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, it's unprecedented. I think to start with, we have to use the right terminology. Speaking about Russian aggression and war against Ukraine, an independent country. But I think equally important is to see the wider picture. It's not about Ukraine only. So whilst we talk here, the Ukrainian soldiers are fighting also for Europe's and the Western world's freedoms, values, but I think more broadly, our way of life. And our unity here is extremely important because the stronger we are, the stronger the message we send and stronger the sanctions, the bigger the chance that it will stop there. And at the same time, it's so crucial that we all help Ukraine, not only in words that, of course, matter, but also in deeds. My own country has provided Ukraine with ammunition and weapons like javelins. We are getting ready, like many countries, especially neighboring Ukraine, for possible refugees. For many, Ukraine might sound as a distant country. It's a country that has 40 million people. So what happens there, in a way, is a turning point for the Western world. And if we don't have correctly, the consequences can be really bad. And I think Americans actually feel a real kinship with Ukraine after everything that went on. And I think we all learned a lot about the country and have a lot of deep respect for the struggles. And it became very real for a lot of us. And a lot of us have Russian ancestors. So a lot of Americans have a lot of connections to that region. Absolutely. And the Ukrainian communities are across the world are very big, equally exactly in U.S. And we get our news bits and pieces, but it does seem that there's this unusual outpouring of artists and pop stars and actors, Russian actors for the first time, maybe speaking up. And it seems that social media, it doesn't seem like anybody's happy with what's going on here. I think there's been a clear awakening, what is going on, and especially regarding uh, the aggressor itself, all the lies that we've been hearing for the past months of dialogue and diplomacy. And in fact, I think it's like Ukraine is a target of a school bully, if you put it in a small environment. And bullies don't stop if you say politely no, so you need to perhaps punch back or send a very strong message that this is it. And I think the same applies what we see now in Ukraine being attacked. 
Thank you for sharing those thoughts. And I know we're a podcast about bikes. So we'd love to also ask you're from Estonia, you moved to the Netherlands and you've been tweeting about bikes. And of course we all dream in America of living in a place like the Netherlands with safe bike lanes. We noticed on Twitter, you have a diplomatic flag on your bike for (laughs) special bike parking. Yeah, I only arrived to the Netherlands in September last year. And it basically started with the fact that when I moved, the movers forgot one thing back in Tallinn, and that was my bike, of all things. And so I arrived, I didn't have a bike. I have to say I was straight away impressed by the network of bike lanes. And as I walk every day to work, it's about 15 minutes journey. As a pedestrian, I felt a bit handicapped because everybody was cycling. And so as the Estonian bike company, Ample Bikes, that makes electric bikes, was making plans to open a flagship store in Amsterdam as well, then I thought, why not combine uh, two things? First of all, to promote an Estonian company as an ambassador, but then you need somehow to stand out. And so initially I thought it would be nice for the bike frame to have a sign that indicates this is the ambassador of Estonia riding it. And then I thought, yeah, but why not go for a diplomatic bike with a flag? As in my tweet as well, I said, normally we embark to a car with a flag to go from point A to point B, stuck in traffic jams. And I thought, first of all, it's a good way to fit in to the community. It's part of my way to be sustainable. I think this act can equally be called sustainable diplomacy. We all have to give our share. And in fact, every little does matter. Sometimes we feel that it doesn't, but it does. There have been many positive retweets and comments. I have to say, first days, I was quite surprised how viral it went. And a Czech ambassador in Estonia was tweeting that he had just initiated ambassador's running club, but I have taken it to a new level. So now they are reconsidering. Maybe there should be a cycling club. (laughs) Here in the Netherlands, when it comes to diplomatic bikes, then I've done my research and it's definitely the first diplomatic bike my colleagues do cycle because the environment is so good for it. And over the years, maybe one or two colleagues have had their bike frames painted to the color of the flag, but not a flag on itself. And to really take maximum out of it and start the new trend among colleagues here in the Netherlands, I'm about also to apply from the local authorities for a diplomatic number plate. (laughs) Uh, So that's the next step. So you'll have preferred parking (laughs) of your bike. Now, I think, no, no preferred parking. First of all, I don't like any additional privileges. And this is really the Netherlands, very down-to-earth society. And I in no means want to have any extra privileges. So I do it like the Dutch, simply have a flag on my bike. But bikes really bring us all together and brings everything down because you've got kids. It's the eight to 80, right? The eight-year-olds and the 80-year-olds. We don't need special bike parking because you bike anywhere you need. Exactly. So how is the biking in Estonia? Um, It's getting better. You can't compare, of course, with the Netherlands, but our starting points are different as well. It has become over the years more popular. 
Tallinn, the capital, is quite a challenge because there the mentality over the years has been that cars first. Uh, so traveling through the city center can be a bit of a hassle. But then when you get out from the city to the countryside and forest, there are plenty of opportunities. And more and more people actually opt for a bike, never mind the weather, and it can be pretty cold and windy because traffic jams are bad. The price of petrol equally is not very wallet friendly. And I think the new generation and the younger people really demand the city of Tallinn to do more. And as young people enter into politics and shape the politics of cities or counties, then we can see the shift. They're already our second biggest town, our oldest university town, is considered a smart city with the city bikes and lanes. So before I came to the Netherlands, Estonia ambassador, I worked four years for my president, President Kersti Kaljulaid, and she was and still is a big fan of cycling. So she made it as well more popular or more mainstream, if I may say it so. But I think everybody who goes abroad from Estonia or from the US and you see how things are done here in the Netherlands or some in the Nordic countries, then, well, it's difficult to do it differently, I have to admit. I agree. I had three days in Amsterdam and three days in Copenhagen and I took the red pill. I saw the matrix. <laughs> I was sold. So you can never unsee what you see. True. The podcast talks to the Dutch a lot about how they did it. And our problem in America, we're in Los Angeles, is that people don't want to slow their cars down because the traffic is so stressful. They want to get places. And what the Netherlands is teaching us is that you have to slow the cars down. And once you slow the cars down and you, you got to get a lot of them out of there too, but that's when you get this magical shift. I agree. And perhaps in terms of preferring cars, I see a lot of similarities with US and Estonia. Uh, it's difficult to get people out of cars, kids being driven in the morning to schools. Quite often you see simply one person in the car. And we started the change by introducing special bus lanes so that people would uh, leave their cars in the suburbs, pick a bus and go with a special lane quickly to work. It has had some effect. And as cycling roads actually are being built, then people do use them. What is one difference with cycling in Estonia and Netherlands is that in Estonia, we actually use helmets. It's compulsory if you are under 15, but... I don't know, it's sort of a practice and a tradition we have that people do wear helmets. So when I came over and first time rented a bike over the weekend in Amsterdam and wore a helmet, people did stare at me. I think they understood immediately that I'm a foreigner and I could sense that their behavior on the bikes changed a bit. I don't know if you felt it when you had the chance to It was cycle. exactly the same. We wore helmets yeah. the first day and then the second day we looked around by the third day we were wearing them. But yeah. if the infrastructure is safe, you don't need them. It's sort of like it's an all or nothing, I think. Yeah, but I think then we also have to speak more about safe cycling because I think we all have seen people cycle. They are on their phones. They are texting. They are having <laughs> WhatsApp calls. And at least in the Netherlands, in traffic, the cyclists come first. Then there is this feeling that whatever I do, I don't have to look left or right. I can go straight ahead doing my own stuff. And I'm a bit scared. 
And I've decided that even in the Netherlands, in the cities, I would wear a helmet and I might be ridiculous. But for me, I think the sustainable diplomacy on a bike comes equally with safe travels. So it's a combination of two. I love the sustainable diplomacy. That's just a wonderful phrase. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been great to talk to you and especially on such a tough day and just hear more of your insight into what's going on. Thanks. And I hope that this tweet will get more and more retweets and encourages more people just to go out there and cycle and do things differently. We can all follow Laurie on Twitter at at L-K-U-U-S-I-N-G. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, I'm Taylor Nichols, and I'm here with Eli Kaufman of the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition. Before I bring in Eli, I want to say real quick that I've been a supporter and a member and a rider with the LACBC almost from the very beginning. I think I went on one of the very first river rides with my daughter when she was four, and we rode all the way down to Long Beach and then took the train back, and it was just one of the greatest days in both of our lives. The LACBC been around about 20 years. Is that correct, Eli? Yeah, that's right. And there was a big change recently, and I want to talk about that first. We had a really wonderful director, Tamika Butler, who did just a lot of really wonderful things for all the diverse communities in the LA region, connecting them through biking. And when she left, the pandemic was shortly to follow after that. And I know that the LACBC went through a reconfiguration with the pandemic and losing a lot of contracts. And I wonder if you could talk really quick about the state of the LACBC and how you're coming out of the pandemic and maybe getting some of those contracts with Metro back on the board to teach cycling education and things like that. One of the things that has always worried me about the state of cycling advocacy in Los Angeles is that it's been very dispersed. There's streets for all, there's Finish the Ride, there's Biking in LA, Better Bike LA, LA DOT, Streets Blog, the list goes on and on. And I've always felt like the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition is the glue that holds all these separate advocates together. And so I wondered if you could really quick give us a state of LACBC. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Taylor. It's fun to be back on Bike Talk. It's been a minute. Yeah, we were in dire straits before the pandemic, as I think I shared on Bike Talk back in 2019. The mechanics of the organization were in pretty bad shape. Finances. And so we were just sort of figuring things out when the pandemic hit. And we did get down to just two full-time employees. But now, over the past year and a half, we've been able to build ourselves back up to seven FTE full-time employees. We have a full-time development person back on. We've got two education people working in LAUSD schools. We've got a big contract with LADWP to do a local e-bike encouragement program with small businesses idea being helping small businesses mode shift from using cars for deliveries to these fat tire e-bikes that we were able to make a deal with Hemingway bikes. So yes, there's a lot of lessons that we learned through the pandemic, but we also were able to secure, as you mentioned, some of those contracts that had become smaller or walked away. Obviously, we're still doing Metro Best, which is the bicycle education safety training program that we lead with a bunch of other nonprofits throughout the county to help cyclists figure out first last mile connection to mass transit and Metro. And so that program is still going on strong. And then we learned some things in the pandemic about how to support locally owned businesses by showing that bikes mean business. And that meant that we would put out these calls to go out to locally owned restaurants on a certain day of the certain week. Everybody show up on your bikes, pick up your orders, show up. So we're maintaining that program on, on Sunset Boulevard. 
And then we did this thing that you participated in called Bike Match, where we created right. built basically about 200 bikes in the course of a couple of days. And we distributed them to folks who are really impacted by the pandemic and others who were essential workers who are still using mass transit at the time it was kind of scary. And so they were looking for alternative modes that were still affordable, like the bicycle. Right. Right. So and that yeah. was a lot of fun. We built up the bikes from, I think, Pure Fix, correct? Is that where they were from? Yeah. Michael Fishman from Pure Cycles donated a bunch of parts and pieces and frames, and we just sort of made it happen. And I have very fond memories of you working with my son, Asa. Yeah. For hours at a time, just building those bikes up piece by piece. He was great. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a rocky road for LACBC like everybody else, but I think we've come through it a lot more pragmatic and just a pretty resilient group. And so that's a little bit on the update. I think the biggest project that's infrastructure focused that I want to share is Sunset for All, which is our community-led active transportation project that's really set to transform one of LA's most iconic streets from a yeah. car thoroughfare into a destination for walkers, transit users, bicyclists, and drivers so that everyone can get where they need to go safely and with ease. It's going to create 3.2 miles of protected bike lanes. It's going to create bus stop upgrades. It's going to connect over 100,000 local residents to the subway. So there's just a lot of things that Sunset for All is going to do. And the coolest thing is that it's aligned with the city's mobility plan 2035, which is this plan they've had since 2015, right? That was almost unanimously voted on by the council members, but they've done very little work on it. So right. this group of community activists and LACBC have come together to do crowdfunding to actually raise the initial money necessary to do the public engagement, to get the priorities of the community, but also to hire a street engineer to put together the initial plans for Sunset for All to become a reality. So right. that's a really exciting project. You should check it out, sunsetforall.org. Something I just want to make sure I plug. Great. You know, I was in Barcelona this summer and Barcelona has made so many changes on their street. And one of the things you said stuck out was that Sunset for All would change Sunset Boulevard just from a thoroughfare to a destination. Yeah. And in Echo Park and in the eastern part of L.A., there are so many great restaurants and bars that make Sunset for All really an attractive way of opening up the public environment for everybody, not right. just cars zooming back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And the last thing I'd say about that is the reason why LACBC is so invested is because we want to figure out what's the secret sauce, like what are the lessons we can learn from Sunset for All to create a playbook, like a street advocacy playbook and training academy. So we can help to develop the next local leaders who are ready to democratize the design, implementation and stewardship of their neighborhood streets. Right. So how do we scale what Avital, Shavit and Terrence Houston have done? And they've been on this show plenty as well. But have done to sort of galvanize the community around this idea, show them that they have a voice and actually start to get some tactical progress to happen. So that's the big play is how do we make sure that we replicate this and scale it across the county? So where are they in terms of either getting it funded or getting it on the city council docket or where is Sunset for All now? Yeah, so we've already raised over $65,000 through the crowdfunding campaign I mentioned. So that allowed us to hire Rock Miller, who's an amazing street engineer. He's just one of the most highly respected, semi-retired. That's why he is giving us the great right. rate to do these initial plans. But yeah, we've already started meeting with Rock and he's starting to do the research on what's feasible, what's possible. Again, we're trying to set this up so we can hand this with a bow on it to Mitchell Farrell and CD13 and to LADOT to say, hey, look, we've done the public engagement. People have voted with their pocketbooks. And on top of all of that, we have some initial engineering that we paid for out of our pocket. Right. And we're not being prescriptive about it. We're saying, here's some ideas. Right. We're helping to get this thing going and let us be the wind in your sails to get this thing done. 
Great, great. That brings me to the next thing that I want to talk about, which is Healthy Streets and the Healthy Streets Initiative, which is sort of, I don't want to say forcing the hand, but making public officials follow their 2035 mobility plan first before they decide that for some reason this implementation can't be done. They have to at least look at it first. And as we found out with the Santa Monica Boulevard redo through Beverly Hills, sometimes you can give them a package with a bow on it all ready to go and they still won't follow it. And that's why I think Healthy Streets Initiative is so important. Yeah, yeah. And just to make sure our listeners are following the right thing, it's, it's Healthy Streets LA. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a radical idea that the Streets for All group put together. And also some of the board members at LACBC have been also excited about being a part of this. To essentially just say, hey, do your own plan. Do your own mobility plan 2035. It's something, again, that's been on the book since 2015. I think the numbers which we've been quoting is that they've done like 3% of the entire thing in the last seven years, less than hundreds of over 3,000 miles that were in the plan. Right. And let's be clear. These are not engineered plans. The plan itself is not ready for people to break ground, right? For DOT to break ground. But it does provide a vision for what the city could be like if we actually invested in active transportation, people-centered infrastructure. So it's a super important opportunity to, frankly, arm the council members with support to implement their own plan. Right now, the loudest voices against any kind of progress are kind of owning the day. And it shouldn't take this, but the idea behind this is to empower those council members to feel like they can actually get stuff done. And I think one other thing about the Healthy Streets Initiative is that it really is only when they're going to repave or redo a street anyways, that they implement what is already in the plan. So they're not going out and doing streets that aren't being repaved. It's as they repave certain streets, make sure they implement the 2035 plan when those streets are repaved or reconfigured or restriped or whatever it is. Is that correct? I believe that's the idea. Yeah, this is not about creating an additional burden in terms of a financial burden on the city. It's about executing the plan that they had already discussed back in 2015. Again, there are some steps there. It's not like just a simple flip of the switch. Some of these ideas would require a little bit more public engagement, sure. uh, a more engineering to really pull off. But the bottom line is that it validates the plan in a whole different way, it brings it back to the voters who say, we got it on the ballot, first of all. Then if it wins, it becomes the voice of the people saying, yet again, we put you in office to sort of its mobility plan 2035. Now we're revalidating it. We're reinforcing it. And I think that's what makes it super interesting. I mean, from our point of view, it'll make our lives easier at LACBC, right? Because our goal is to get that built environment, that infrastructure in. And, and if there's a way for us to compel the elected leaders that this is just the thing that they've already agreed to, it helps us in many ways to get our work done. Right. Great. You know, Nick, the founder of Bike Talk, is on the East Coast now. And so our broadcast range is expanding. And I wonder if really quick, you could answer why Los Angeles is behind the eight ball so much. I mean, everyone always talks about LA as the car capital and all that kind of stuff. And it was built mainly after World War II. So it was built for the automobile. But why is Los Angeles so far behind Long Beach and Santa Monica and New York and Barcelona and Paris? Why is this major US city dragging its heels so much? Oh, well, it's a million dollar question. I mean, if I had that silver bullet answer, we'd be further along in our advocacy as well. I mean, I do think it has to do with the being sold a bill of goods. LA is the car capital of the world. We have the Peterson Car Museum, which I've walked through that with my son because it's just such a well-produced museum. Let's say what right. it is. And soon you can take the subway there. 
Well, exactly. And I think eventually if we do our job right, there'll be an entire floor that's dedicated to active transportation and the use of e-bikes as a way to shrink the sprawl of LA. I think that the Peterson Automobile Museum, maybe if we do our job right, some years from now, will be more of a transportation museum that really talks to all kinds of modalities from walkers and bikers and scooterists to drivers who still have to get in the car. And we're not an anti-car coalition. We're not. But we would like to have people be more conscious about the shorter trips that they take and to see if they can make a decision to try an alternative mode that's healthy for them, that's more sustainable, that's more joyful than getting stuck in traffic, right? So to answer your question, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the bill of goods that was marketed to Angelinos, the drive through, this idea of liberty and freedom. And I think that's a part of the bill of goods that was sold by the automobile companies, by the companies that dismantled the red car and all that public transportation right around the time when the automobile was coming up to speed. Another piece of it is that we've got this huge sprawl in our area. So When you talk about Santa Monica or Barcelona or many of these other cities, they have geographical elements that keep them small, San Francisco, a peninsula. And so the density of those cities, I think, achieved their density moment sooner than L.A. L.A. is getting dense now. Buildings are going vertical and people are building EDUs in the back of their properties. And so I think we're seeing a shift from that idea that you have the two-car garage with the two cars and the 2.5 kids. And everybody's got their own yard instead of public parks. And everybody drives their own roads instead of taking public transit or riding bikes. So I feel like it's a cultural thing that we're still a young city in those ways as well. So those are factors. The final thing that is also related to the sprawl is that because the city of LA is so humongous, it's the size of multiple mid-sized cities. Right. There's 15 council districts, as you very well know. The scale of it is so big. I think it's been a challenge for even super inspired, innovative leaders to make change, even within their districts, let alone mayors across the entire city. And so we're sort of the victim of that scale as a city in terms of right. just geographically how many square miles we have to cover. And I think we've also not grown responsibly as a city. People can have a hard time finding dignified work within reach. There's this whole movement for the 15-minute city, Taylor, that I'm sure you're aware of. Sure, of course, right. All of your essential needs should be within 15 minutes of your front door, by foot or by bicycle. And we're so far from that in terms of dignified work, medical care, good education, all the amenities that we should have easy access to. In LA, we've just allowed our sprawl to sort of deny us that accessibility to the things that really matter. Right. I was on the neighborhood council for a long time in the neighborhood where I live, the mid-city west area. And there was always conflict between the more progressive members of the council and the members of the council who wanted to stymie growth. And one of the issues that I always tried to put forward with the, I don't want to say NIMBYs, because they weren't necessarily NIMBYs, but they were sort of anti-growth, was we're not going to stop Los Angeles or any city from growing. So let's manage how we grow. And I think that so often we've been caught building 20th century road infrastructure as we're now finally in 2022 starting to build 21st century housing. And as housing gets more dense, we need to change our streetscapes to allow people to, like you said, live within a 15 minute city. I live in an area that was built pre-World War II. And so I very much live in a 15 minute city. There's a few churches a few blocks away and schools just a few blocks away. Trader Joe's a few blocks one way, Whole Foods a few blocks the other way. So I can really walk or cycle almost everywhere, which is really one of the handy things about living where I live. Yeah. And something to try to replicate across the region. I mean, I think even with our chapters, we were just discussing recently, 
how should we create the nodes within the chapter system? Should it really be by what's been drawn in terms of districts or should it be by a 15-minute city model to sort right. of think about what are the dimensions or what is the radius of a chapter? And in LA, it may not be 15 minutes. Let's be real. It may be more like 20 or 25 minutes sure. on for a city this sprawling in this scale. But it's about changing how we design to be more human-centered and more accessible by foot and by bike so that we can offset all those issues that we've created for ourselves in terms of climate change, in terms of lack of equity for communities and commuters who've got to do crazy VMTs of vehicles mild traveled per day. We got too many people on the roads driving too far at the same time of day too often. And what it's created is this sick, disconnected, unhealthy. What's that? Fat. (laughs) That, yeah, the impacts are devastating. Something that we talk about at LACBC, you know, beyond the devastating impact of traffic violence, LA suffers because our transportation infrastructure places disproportionate burdens, health, economic, and environmental burdens on us all, but specifically on communities of color that have suffered from divestment. And so you're talking about like years of design that have put these communities at risk. And then meanwhile, at the same time, often failing to meet the basic mobility needs of those same communities that are suffering from our transportation infrastructure and not providing proper service to them. And so I'm excited. You made that joke about on the Peterson, the purple line is going to be bringing folks to that car museum by Metro. I mean, that's, there it is. Half of the Peterson museum is a garage. Right. (laughs) Totally. Metro works, right? They could convert the second half of that thing and make a bike park or active transportation. That's the dream. So if anyone from Peterson is listening, you know, from our perspective, we want to celebrate transportation, not as something that is a burden that we all suffer, but as a benefit that we all share. That's right. really the vision for LACBC. We are taping this on March 3rd, it happens to be my birthday. But birthday. in thank you. In June, on June 7th, are the primary elections for the city council and for the mayor. What issues would you like to see them discuss on the campaign trail between now and June 7th? Oh, well, that's a great lead. And we didn't talk about this in advance. I'm glad you brought that up. LACBC is partnering with LA Walks, Climate Resolve, and Move LA, all sort of mobility justice, environmental justice groups, to develop a mayoral candidate questionnaire. And we want a grant from Spark to develop this questionnaire and make sure that we have the time to do the public engagement to include the voice of the people and these various communities to make sure their questions are on this questionnaire. So I would say stay tuned. Obviously, it's related to making sure that we have dignified access to mass transit, that these folks are willing to take a hard look at Mobility Plan 2035 and figure out not just how beautiful it is, but how to implement it, Implement it. how to spend the resources to actually make it a reality. But we'll have a questionnaire that I'd love to come back and present in another quick segment with you. We should have the initial draft done in the middle of this month, and then we'd love to bring it back to this show and talk about it in detail. Great. We'd love to have you back. Tell me really quick how people can connect with LACBC and with some of the things you're working on, whether it be Streets for All or Sunset for All or the Healthy Streets Initiative. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of URLs for people to think about on their way out. One is if you want to find out more about our work, go to www.la-bike.org. That's la-bike.org. So that's our website. We have a new cycle you should sign up for so you can see how you can get active in your local community. If you have a chapter in your area or if you want to start a chapter, meaning the local advocacy teams that we are supporting in the region. Sunset for All is the project we talked about earlier in the show. Is uh, Just go to sunsetforall.org or you can go to our website and check out uh, Sunset for All as well to see how you can participate in that project. 
which we're obviously very excited about. Healthy Streets LA is the initiative that we talked about that Taylor mentioned that's being really put out there initially by Streets for All, but has built a larger coalition around itself. And we need to get over 65,000 signatures by May 22nd, the absolute deadline. So if you feel like you feel comfortable during pandemic times getting out folks to get the ordinance on the ballot in the first place, then you should definitely check out that website. It's very user-friendly. It's very easy to sign up. One more time, Eli, what's the website for that? It's healthystreetsla.com. And it's a very user-friendly experience. They've done a nice job of engineering it. So if you want to just sign the petition or if you want to volunteer or if you want to be a district captain, they're really looking for people who can devote a lot of time because it's essentially a volunteer army that is being assembled to get these signatures to get this ordinance on the ballot. So again, you're just asking for people to sign it to get it on the ballot or to volunteer to get other people to sign to get on the ballot, not to necessarily support it, but just to get it on the ballot. Yeah, sure. They're not voting. We're just getting it to the place where it can be voted on. Right. And this is a unique opportunity for us to put something on the ballot that really matters to public transportation, to pedestrianism, to bicycling, a more livable LA for everyone. Perfect. Great. Eli, I know you're busy, so thanks a lot. We were able to schedule this in at the last minute, so I'm really glad we did. Is there anything that I missed that you'd like to mention or talk about or before we sign off? I'm going to give you a ring to tell you about our mayoral candidate questionnaire that we're developing again with LA Walks, Move LA, Climate Resolve, and a few other orgs. We'd love to come back, maybe with John Yee and some of those other characters we all collaborate with to share that survey and what went into it, how we fundraised around it, and how we made sure that we included as many voices from across the city to make sure that it wasn't just always the loudest advocacy voices like my own and others, but really the voice of the people are in this questionnaire. Great. Well, again, I am a huge supporter of the Los Angeles County Bicycle Coalition as I wear my shirt with Eli. Eli, I think you're doing a great job there. I'm so glad that you're heading up the program. I really do believe it's the glue that holds all of the advocacy together in Los Angeles. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me and uh, look forward to catching up soon. You're listening to Bike Talk, and next you'll hear an interview with Petru Sofio, an intern with the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition. It's also with Galen Mook, executive director of the coalition. Petru got our attention by tweeting some drawings of traffic lights and intersections that he drew when he was just a kid. Petru talked to us over Zoom with a picture of the intersection in Arlington, Massachusetts, where he and MassBike were able to change the infrastructure to make it safer for bicyclists and pedestrians. Hi, I'm Petru Sofio. I'm a high school student in Arlington, Massachusetts, and the tweet that uh, I tweeted was a photo of some of my drawings from when I was a little kid of traffic signals and bicycle lanes. Love the background, Petru. Yeah, it's from a, a project in November that Galen and I advocated for, um, where a cyclist was fatally struck. Uh, we advocated for bike lanes and they put them in and that was good. What kind of kid were you to be drawing traffic light maps of your neighborhood at the age of it was between four and seven. Yeah, maybe a little bit older too. It we kind of, it came and went. Like I would start drawing maps, and then I'd get into something else, and then I'd go back to drawing traffic signal maps, and then I'd be interested in something else. And then, in over the pandemic, I got interested in it again, and I don't think I'm going to lose it this time because I know like a lot more people now, and of course I work in kind of like the field. Um, with road design uh, specifically. So it's something I've been passionate about on and off, but definitely continuously, just like I've had periods of time where I've focused on it more 
And now I'm happy to focus on it because I find it really interesting. This just came out of you. When I was younger, I used to be interested in trains like a lot of you know kids are. And I always liked like the grade crossing signals, um, especially. And then from that, I guess it just came to traffic control. And I would, you know, be interested in how crossings can be made safer. And then I was always into traffic signals and I still really am. But in the pandemic, I started being more interested in road layouts and a couple, a couple years earlier as well, like with separated bike lanes. Um, and over the pandemic, I kind of learned what Massachusetts has to offer. Uh, relating to biking and I would go explore to see friends and I'd say oh wow there's a separate bike lane here it made me want to explore more of them so that made me really interested in that but earlier on I I don't really know I just really liked maps and I love to draw and I, I like to draw things I was interested in and I have a few drawings of the intersection that's behind me Mass and Appleton because I thought that light was interesting and that kind of create turned into like my first work project. So just the way that that kind of happened was really interesting to me. You're talking about this intersection. Did you become interested in it uh, before it changed? I was always interested in it as a kid because I live in the neighborhood. So whenever I'd walk anywhere, I'd have to cross it. And I always thought it was interesting just because of the flashing yellow. And I don't know, it was it was in my intersection like neighborhood. So I would see it a lot. Um, and then after the fatality, you know, I've always noticed the problems at the intersection. Uh, I've even posted on social media one time in 2019, like a year before that, like this intersection was dangerous. And when is the town going to fix it? Because people were always running the red light. And then the fatality happened over the pandemic really tragically. And I, you know, connected it to school in my engineering course. And I started working on it with that. And then that connected me to the town because I wanted to see what would actually happen because we have the cones, of course, over parts of the year that get put out to ban the left turns. And that was a really nice short-term solution, but I thought that something more permanent should have happened because, you know, Galen and I talked about this and we just thought that even if the intersection was dangerous, especially during the period of time in the afternoon when the sun glare is really bad, it's kind of dangerous all the time. So we, there should be something there permanently. So the APD doesn't, the police department doesn't have to sit out here constantly blocking that left turn. So Galen, you, you want to tell the, tell about what happened from your point of view? Yeah, sure. The story of Arlington's intersection here, um, like so many transportation fixes is a response to a tragedy. What Arlington's dealing with and particularly those who are in Massachusetts, this is not uncommon. You know, you have road infrastructure that was built piecemeal over the course of several decades that really only had auto centrality, didn't really account for, um, you know, safe pedestrian crossings or um, really even <laughs> um, slowing down or, or signalization for uh, even motor traffic. What happened um, kind of sadly, unsurprisingly, in May of 2020, uh, there was the classic example of if you're listeners are familiar with what a left hook is, where a driver doesn't yield the right of way, crosses in front of a travel lane, and a bicyclist, a person on a bike who's going through is struck um, and ended in a fatal crash here. And Charlie Proctor was killed. I believe he was a 28-year-old. It was just a couple weeks shy of his 28th birthday. He was a Tufts University graduate, worked at an architecture firm, well-known in his field. It's just one of those just sad tragedies. Um, driver wasn't charged and there's some nuances there which I won't necessarily get into but 
what we determined as advocates is, well, what can we do? Well, first off, to do the immediate response to a fatality, we always like to do kind of a, a quick um, build or a quick implementation or a quick suggestion that a jurisdiction can try to implement to try to deal with the immediate safety danger because the day Charlie was killed, um, the road was just as dangerous the day after, road was just as dangerous six months after, just as it was 10 years prior. So we'd say, okay, what can we do in the immediate knowing that this is a dangerous spot? There was actually a review of this exact same intersection, which was about 10 years old. They recommended that the state and the town address the safety deficiencies of this specific intersection. Um, the town didn't do anything. The state didn't do anything. And 10 years later, we have a fatal crash. So at MassBike, we basically did a call for action of Arlington residents using our, our membership and, and our connections to ask the town to implement a, a design safety committee, basically a, a town-oriented committee that would be comprised of business leaders, abutters, residents, students where appropriate, and general citizens. But because we have very strong town meeting laws in, in Massachusetts, we had to do it by the books. Over the course of about 18 months, uh, the design review committee was formed, got officially sanctioned by the town select board, and started to review uh, basically quick fixes, medium fixes, and long-term fixes to the intersection. Um, Petra and I were both involved, though neither of us sat on the committee. Um, I am involved because I run MassPike, and we have a lot of members in Arlington. Petra, of course, is a resident and student who is crossing this intersection twice a day to go to school. Um, so we ended up at MassPike actually hiring Petru as an intern, knowing that his skills of analyzing and design suggestions were needed, like absolutely needed here. Um, and we figure, well, let's compensate you for the time and actually put some dedicated time into this. So, you know, just a few hours a week so that he could balance it out with his schoolwork. But we actually hired Petru to really keep on this project. So long story short, as a lot of your listeners know, that it takes a lot of watchdogging and persistence from local advocates in order to get even just a small intersection fixed. And this is a pretty major intersection. So um, luckily we, we had the activism, um, we had Petru, uh, we had his insights with a, uh, a deeply seated knowledge of just innately how traffic systems work. I don't know how Petru gets it. We can kind of talk about that in a second. Um, but we were actually able to kind of make a good rapport with the town, um, get the town to fund uh, a quick fix, get the town to hire consultants. 18 months after we started the campaign, which may feel like a long time, but bike advocates know that that's actually pretty quick um, in terms of getting a bike lane in. Um, but in the end, the town acquiesced, I should say, and um, took the committee's suggestions, um, removed some on-street parking, retained other on-street parking, um, striped a bike lane through the intersection, controlled one of the roads so that it no longer uh, is a two-way. Um, so it simplifies the intersection, striped the heck out of it, so there's like dash lines and green paint and arrows and caution signs and all that sort of stuff. Um, and this was the temporary fix. So we're still going to keep on the town because we think that the, the entire light system, the whole signalization needs to be redone, but that's going to be upwards of, I don't know, $300,000 the town needs to raise. Like so this was what they could, uh, yeah. Was that Petru? Two million probably. <laughs> okay. So what could we do for, you know, $50,000, $100,000 while we're waiting for the $2 million from the state. So this was uh, this was not in any small part due to the uh, 
public pressure that was put on the town to, to act quickly. So Arlington, Massachusetts is a, is a particularly progressive town in some aspects, but still mired in town politics and regressive in other aspects. I'm wondering as a uh, uh, 16-year-old now, yeah. um, after having followed this for you know a better part of the last year, what's your take on how Arlington functions and if there's any insights you have there? I mean, I feel like we're a town that kind of maybe should be a city in many ways. Um, Arlington, you know, oh, like in the 1970s, 1980s, was more of a blue collar town. And there were, you know, even opposition to a red line expansion that's, uh, was a very big deal. Um, and because the red line was funded um, to be expanded and Lexington wanted it, but Arlington blocked it. And, and because of that, the project failed. And that became the Minuteman Bikeway, which is really nice, but um, that was a really key aspect. But now as Boston kind of grows, you know, there are a lot of new progressives moving in and it's kind of a, you know, the town is kind of changing in a way that's becoming more progressive, more bike friendly, but there's still a lot of residents who miss the old, the old way that the town was where, you know, they were more automobile centric and, you know, in the past 10 years, there's been a lot of fights about this. Like in East Arlington, there was a project just six years ago where no parking was going to be removed, but they were going to remove a travel lane in one direction to put in bike lanes. And MassDOT said they wouldn't fund the project unless bike lanes were installed. And there was still a debate in town whether the project should go forward just because of that one lane that would be ha- that would have to be taken away for the bike lanes. And luckily, the town realized that, hey, people are dying here. Like two pedestrians or maybe three have been killed, were killed on that stretch. And they finally realized that they have to do the road diet. And luckily, now that's one of the most popular bike lanes um, everywhere in Arlington Livable Streets, which is an advocacy group that we teamed up with here with MassBike, a local advocacy group. Um, they do bike counts every year. And the year before the bike lanes were installed in East Arlington, it was, there were 63 people riding or 73 people riding into Boston in the morning commute. And then a year later, when the bike lanes were installed, it jumped to 125. So that's a pretty big jump just because of the bicycle lanes. Um, You know, New England has narrow roads and this is one of them, Mass Avenue. So to put in bike lanes, you'd have to take out parking on one side of the street. And that really came down to this key block that where there are some businesses and we would have had to take away maybe nine or seven parking spaces on the side opposite to the businesses. And that was a lot for the businesses. So they opposed it. And then we had to argue back and forth. And that was what came down to the wire of the select board. But we were only one vote short. And if the select board um, at election went differently last April, we probably would have had the full on-street bike lanes. But that doesn't mean that this wasn't a win. We still have mostly full bike lanes. It's kind of 75% of a win for us, but the businesses still get to keep their parking. So good for them. And we'll see what happens as we move forward. Um, The town is planning to do reconstruction here, and that will be a more major process. Galen, did you meet Petru during this? Yeah, he um, started to show up and voice his his advocacy. And, um, you know, we're always looking for youth voices. That's something that we always try to pin because we think that, well, one, the road should be safe for teenagers to ride. Um, and 
who knows their neighborhood better than somebody who grew up in it? So we basically asked Petra, we're like, hey, what, what should we be advocating for here? Um, and Petra basically said, we'll put a sign here and this bike lane here. And he was actually very thoughtful in analyzing the proposed designs that were coming out of the professional consultants and very keen on the deficiencies that the professional consultants were coming up with and making great suggestions. So Petra literally just uh, came to our attention based off tweets and um, comment letters. And then we started to kind of connect a little bit more knowing that we were gonna get deeper into this project. Thank you, Petru, for existing. And thank you, Galen, for finding Petru and putting him to, to work. Petru, when you came across the original drawings that you tweeted about, was that a surprise to you? Or like, has this always kind of been in the back of your mind? You're like, oh, I've been trying to do street redesign in the back of my mind ever since I was you know, six or seven. And now it's finally coming to fruition. Or was this something that you did as a kid, took a break, you know, did something else and now you're kind of looping back into. I feel like it's more like something I did as a kid and I wasn't sure if I was going to do it, you know, more professionally, uh, but it just happened that way. I mean, I knew it was an option, but, you know, I, there were always other things that were interesting too, you know. <laughs> I mean, most kids don't really know what they want to do uh, until they're much older. And so I feel really lucky that I'm passionate about this and just getting into this project and just, bicycle infrastructure in general has really made me interested in you know just traffic engineering and I just find it really interesting so when I saw the proposals and when I made my own I just thought it was really exciting and you know it was a cool way to look at the project and you know we started like when the first design came out from green it was just shared lane markings and 15 foot wide lanes in both directions and you know we elevated that to almost full bike lanes so that's pretty impressive, you know, coming from that. Right, Do you right. feel encouraged now to continue on? I mean, is this something that you're going to keep full steam on? Or now that we've kind of got this win, do you feel like maybe you can peel back a bit and focus on other things that, you know, a 16-year-old might want to be focusing on? I'm pretty happy working for more safer solutions. Arlington is going to hear from me in the reconstruction process. And I'm really confident that we can get sidewalk level bike lanes in both directions here in 2024 that is our goal so we can do it i love it um, my last question for you are you able to galvanize some of your peers are you you find like a cohort of uh youthful advocates who want to see the change in their town that we can kind of you know help empower well i mean hopefully i have been taking a lot of my friends out on bike rides so we have every once in a while, I'll get a text of a photo of a protected bike lane and they'll be, oh, look, it's a protected bike lane flex post. And I'll be like, oh my gosh. So maybe people are starting to like them. So <laughs> it's working. And we have Cambridge is a great example for us too, right nearby. So they, we really look to them for the lead because they lead not just the state, but they lead the country in bicycle infrastructure. And hopefully Arlington will be there too. It's certainly helped Mass Bike to have that voice and keep it up. Thanks. Oh. Catch yourself a bike.